Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis chapter 7. I have to confess to you that as I was looking at Genesis chapter 7, I thought, okay, what do we do with this? I mean, I could have just gone into a whole Jay Siegert presentation. In fact, I actually sent to him and said, will you send me your PowerPoint for that? And I looked at it and I thought, I'm not Jay Siegert. He's a creation scientist that has been here and shared his wisdom with us on all things creation and the flood. But um, the thing that I came up with through much prayer and, and considering and reading over again and again is the fact that, that God was over all this. And um, it's, it's kind of like the theme that we're experiencing and going through with our midweek Bible study, glorying in suffering, and kind of like what the believers in Israel and Ukraine right now are being challenged with, the glory in their suffering. And so I'd like to just open in prayer and ask God to bless this time and use his word to encourage our hearts, even in the midst of this incredible thing called the flood. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you and we humbly admit that we are inadequate uh, to come to your word like this and break it open. And Father, we trust that you will use the thoughts and your word to break into our hearts and show us a picture of yourself that maybe we haven't considered before. And that we might be encouraged thereby and strengthened thereby, even though we may be going through difficult times. Surely not as great as the flood. And surely not as great as the Ukraine or or Israel right now. But Father, it's great to us if we're having a hard time. And so, take your word and use it today, we pray. And may you receive all the glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I wanted to start out by reading a portion of Psalm 104. You could turn there if you'd like. Psalm 104, verses 5 through 9. It says, He established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. And then it says, You, referring to He, covered it with the deep as with a garment and the waters were standing above the mountains. So I think in this little section of Scripture, we move from the original creation to the flood. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose, and the valley sank down to the place which you established for them. And you set a boundary that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth. And then there's a verse in Psalm 29 that I felt is very important for us to consider as we look at the flood. 29.10 says this, Yahweh sat enthroned over the flood. Indeed, Yahweh sits as king forever. 
Now, it's abundantly clear that the chaotic and tumultuous upheaval of the great flood in Noah's day was calmly and firmly in the hand of Yahweh. That blows my mind. If you just stop and think for a little bit about what took place during the flood, Yahweh was calmly overseeing all of it. While everything on earth was churning, Yahweh was overall sovereign and stately. The Bible portrays Yahweh as the one who established the earth on its foundation and the one who covered the earth with a flood as with a garment. And the waters were over the mountains and the mountains rose up while at the same time the valleys sunk deeper than before in order to house the vast amount of water from the flood. We'll get to that in a moment. It was Yahweh that sent the waters to the valleys, a place of his making where he set a boundary for them that there they would never again cover the earth as they had once done. (laughs) We shouldn't be shocked because we're talking about the creator God. He created the heavens and the earth. But it still makes us marvel when we think of this flood and his intimate involvement. Notice the verb tenses in Psalm 29.10. It says Yahweh sat, past tense, over the flood. Then Yahweh sits, present tense, as king forever. He's our only hope that the earth will not be swallowed up by a flood of water ever again, even as he did promise at least twice in Genesis 9.11 and verse 15. Never again will water become a flood to destroy all flesh. So I want you to keep in mind that he sat over the flood. And as we look at what took place when the flood overwhelmed the earth and Yahweh destroyed every living thing on earth, I want you to be thinking of him sitting quietly and calmly overseeing that flood. Now there's a lot to take away from this account. The flood presents a turbulent scene over against a picture of a tranquil God. And the flood suggests mega turbulence, not only the churning of the fountains of the great deep bursting open, but also the floodgates of the sky opening up. And rain came down in torrents for 40 days and 40 nights, Genesis 7, 11, and 12. Now, I lived in a tropical rainforest for 20 years, and um, every rainy season, the monsoon season, we would have torrential rains but they'd only last a day or two, and then it'd kind of clear off a little bit. But during those torrential rains, our house had corrugated tin roofing, uh, roofing, and (laughs) you couldn't hear hear each other talk, and it was weird. I'll be honest with you. You start hearing things. As the rain is just pouring down, you'd hear voices, and I'd go, what? And Mary would say, I didn't say anything. (laughs) And then as the rains were coming down, the river whose shore we lived on, would begin to flood. Massive flooding where trees that were maybe four ha, okay, in, in circumference, would go down root system and all and swirl in the river right out our window as we watched. Now we had a, a small foothill that was right protecting our house from those waters. So I'm not under, initiated with flooding, but... Definitely uninitiated with this kind of flooding. 
And I can't hardly imagine because when I think about flooding, I think back to those days in Taliabu. But God, but God was at rest, sitting over the whole matter. He calmly sat over the flood with no sense of moral misgivings. He didn't question what he had chosen to do. No sense that things were out of control, even though everything on earth was churning. But with complete control and complete ease, he supremely oversaw it all. Remember this calm demeanor and the comfort and stability that he exhibited during this tumultuous time on earth because it can bring that kind of calmness to our hearts as we face the calamities of life. When you hear the most devastating news, and sometimes we get those kind of messages, don't we? Or you suffer the most just horrific shock, betrayal. I, I've experienced that, friends betraying me. It just It's a gut punch. It's like, how could they do that? I trusted you. I love you. You love me. What happened? Yahweh sits, present tense, as king forever. That verse 10 of Psalm 29 is undergirding everything I'm going to say today. When you hear the most devastating news, when you get that shock, he is solid, immovable, and as the scripture says, he is a strong tower into which the righteous flee and then are safe. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the flood of water that had never been seen before on the earth. And the question that I ask, was the flood universal or was it local? Because there are a lot of people and even some quote-unquote evangelicals, that, that term has kind of lost its, its meaning, I think, but some evangelicals that would promote that it was just a local flood. Many have tried to say that Genesis 6 through 9 presents that very clearly. I see something different. There's enough evidence to show the flood was certainly universal, and I'm going to give you seven instances where you can just take these to the bank. You can take these to those who might think it's local and question them with it and talk about it. The first is the depth of the flood and the flood levels that were experienced. The Bible plainly states that the flood waters rose high enough for the ark to float over the highest mountains. Look at verses 19 and 20 of chapter 7. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. And the water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. The mountains mentioned would have had to have been covered over by 22, at least 22 and a half feet, so that the box that we talked about, which would be floating, would be able to be float above the mountains. You understand what I'm saying? Because that box was loaded with cargo, if you will, and so it would sink down deeper in the water, and we have the dimensions of the box, and so it would have had to be at least over 20 feet above the mountaintops so the ark could float over them. Mount Ararat, in verse 4, 
8.4, where we're told that the ark landed, is measured to be around 17,000 feet in altitude. Stop and think. Now, whether or not it was that tall at that time, we don't know for certain, because it is the world that was. But it was a mountain. (laughs) It was a mountain. And it's hard to imagine a local flood going that deep. Yahweh sat enthroned over the flood, we read. Now, the length of time that the flood, this is point number two, the length of the time of the flood. The Bible says that the duration of the flood was over a year in length, 371 days to be exact. In Genesis 7, 11, and 12, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. That's 40. You can tabulate this if you want. And in Genesis 7, 17, and 24, we find that water covers uh, for 110 days and then begins to recede. So there's 150 days. And then in Genesis 8, 5, we read that the tops of the mountains are seen. And that was 74 more days, if you tabulate that. After 40 days, Noah sent a raven out. So that's 40 more days. You find that in Genesis 8, 6, and 7. And then seven more days, and he sent out a dove. And then seven more days, he sent out the second dove. And then seven more days, he sent out the third dove. You find all that in Genesis 8, 8, through 12. So you got 21 more days there. And then in Genesis 8:13, the covering is removed from the ark. And that if you tabulate the dates there, you will come up with 29 days. And finally Noah and the family leave the ark after 57 days. Genesis 8:14 through 16, that is a total of 371 days that they were in the ark. 300, that's a year, people. Yahweh sat enthroned over the flood. A year. Now, I told you, we had horrific flooding. But that would subside, and, and within a week, the river was back to normal, and sometimes the sun would come out, and then it would start raining again, and we'd go through the whole cycle again. But a year before they could actually get out of the ark, Number three, the fountains of the great deep were broken up. Look at verse 11 of chapter 7. Verse 10 says, It came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. And then it says in verse 11, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. Wow. This refers to the vast geological upheaval that lasted five months. <laughs> you know, I think, I think we all think, okay, it rained, and we, you hear 40 days and 40 nights, and it kind of goes right past us, and we think, it really rained a lot. It says here in Genesis 8, 2, and 3, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts of the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused the wind to pass over the earth and the water to subside, and 
Also, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained. That's after, that's after 150 days, people. That is five months that those floodgates were bursting open, subterranean water coming up, and the, 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 the gates of heaven were open and water coming down. And I know it only rained 40 days and 40 nights, but it doesn't say it stopped completely at that time. The Hebrew word used for bursting open is bakai, and it means to be broken open or cleaved apart. It's the same word used of Abraham splitting wood for the sacrifice when he was going to take Isaac up and sacrifice him at God's command. It's the same word that was used in Exodus 14, where it described how the sea broke open, cleaved open, so the Israelites could walk through it on dry ground. And the most graphic of all to me is the word bakai, where it's used to describe the earth opening up and swallowing rebellious Korah and his followers. It opened up. So these these subterranean great deep fountains broke apart is what it's saying. So I think in just human language, God is trying to communicate to us that there was some mega stuff going on, and it went on for five months. <laughs> five months. Job twelve fifteen says, The waters of this flood inundated the earth. That word means to overthrow. It overturned. Carries the idea of intense violence. It, it's used to describe what God did to Sodom when he overthrew the city in a moment. That's what was happening during the flood. God was overthrowing the earth. Also, the word used for flood in this context, only in this context, Genesis 6 through 9, is the Hebrew word mabol. And it's only used here for the great flood. I could list off the verses that it's used here, but I'm not going to do that. And it's only used two other times in the Old Testament, and both instances refer to Noah's flood. One is... Psalm 29, 10, where it talks about flood, that's Mabul, and in Isaiah 54, 9, which says, for this is like the, the days of Noah to me, God said, where I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. Flood, that's the same word. It's a very specific word. It's not, and there are other words for flooding that takes place in other parts of the Old Testament, not Mabul. Even so, Yahweh sat enthroned over this flood. Fourthly, the immense capacity of the ark. You have 1,000, excuse me, 1,400,000 cubic feet of space, which seems a bit excessive if it's a local flood. I would think. Also, interestingly, is the fact that Noah took pairs of birds into the ark, according to Genesis 7-8. Well, birds could have escaped if it was just local to someplace nicer. They could have. And if the flood were local, Noah could have moved as well, right? 120 years he was warning the people of a flood coming. He could have said, okay, it's getting close. Time to move. Let's go to another place. He didn't. Because the flood was universal. 
So that's four and five. The immense capacity of the ark with birds in it. And then five, if the flood were local, Noah could have moved. Six, the language that's used is indicative of universality. Okay? Throughout the account, terms such as the face of all the earth and all the high mountains, everywhere under the heavens. (laughs) And he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the earth. That doesn't lend to a local scene at all. So we believe in a historical, grammatical, literal interpretation of the scripture. And if words mean anything, these words mean something. And it's talking universality. But Yahweh sat enthroned over that flood. Finally, God's promise to never send such a flood again. You find that in Genesis 9-11. That would have been a flat-out lie. Why? Because there's local floods all the time. Taliabo has them every year. The Philippines, right? There have been innumerable local floods since the days of Noah, so God's promise would have been broken with each flood if it had been a local flood and not a universal flood. So those are just seven real simple things that you can bring before folks that might want to contest whether or not it was universal or local. So where did all that water come from? I gave you a little bit of a key to that, but I want to talk a little bit more about it. As I already mentioned, there are basically two sources, uh, the fountains of the great deep and the windows of heaven. Well, the fountains of the great deep are have to be subterranean water sources that were unleashed and not in a momentary flash, but continuously for five months. Huge upheaval taking place. That's why we call it the world that was, then was. We are in a different world now. We can't gauge that world that then was based on what now is. Does that make sense? Did I say that right? Okay. Um, Because it's different. Um, there's a, there's a, a scientist who's, who's not a believer by any stretch of imagination. He wrote this, quote, Deep inside the earth, the pressure is excruciating. Squeezed into strange shapes and forms, the rocks are so hot that they crawl like super thick syrup. It is an inferno worthy of Dante, but it also contains something surprising. What's the last thing you would expect to find in this hellish environment? Water. Water. Vast amounts of the stuff. In fact, more than 400 kilometers inside the earth, there may be enough water to replace the surface oceans more than 10 times. But the water is not a series of immense seas. Rather, it's scattered in droplets, some as small as a single molecule with most trapped inside of crystal lattices of rare minerals that only form under intense pressure. Now, how much there is down there is still fiercely debated. But these inner oceans could help to explain why massive volcanic outbursts suddenly flood hundreds of thousands of square kilometers with lava. Let me say something to you here. Up to 70% or more of what comes out of volcanoes today is water as steam. (laughs) It's coming from someplace. 
to me, that was really, really interesting. So that is the first source, is these fountains of the great deep are opened. Actually burst open, cleaved open. Secondly, in verse 11, it also says, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. Now if all the water in our present atmosphere were suddenly precipitated, it would only suffice to cover the ground to an average depth of less than two inches. So, the normal hydrological cycle would have been incapable of supplying the tremendous amounts of rain the Bible records and describes. 40 days and 40 nights of rain. There seems to have been an atmospheric source of water of an entirely different type and order of magnitude than now exists. And I've heard a lot of different proposals of what that might be, the the canopy vapor that surrounded us. And, you know, there's scientists that say, yeah, that's, that's maybe a model that could be true. Others say, no, that cannot possibly be true, the greenhouse effect. You've all heard these things, I think, most of you. But something happened up there because the windows of heaven opened up and it rained 40 days and 40 nights. Well, the the next question after you have, where did all the water come from, is where did all the water go, right? And this, to me, again, was very interesting. Not to be too simplistic, but all the water from the flood is in our oceans and seas. That's where it is. Presently, did you know this stat? I don't know. This staggered me. Uh, I love doing what I do for you. Please don't fire me. Please don't retire me. I just learn so much every week. Presently, three-fourths of the earth's surface is covered by water. Three-quarters of the earth is water. Psalm 104, 5 through 9 is attributable to the flood and not original creation. In Psalm 104 verse 5, it says, He established the earth upon a foundation so that um, it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with deep as with a garment, and the waters were standing above the mountains. Now that's a lot of water. And we already, at least in my mind, established that it's universal. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they hurried away. And it says, the mountains rose... And the valley sunk down. Now, that's why I say Mount Ararat may have been not quite 17,000 feet. It could have been less than that at that time, but it was still called a mountain. But because of the flood, the mountains rose and the valley sank down. And then it says, to a place which you established for them, you set a boundary that they may not pass over and so that they will never return to cover the earth. Secular as well as Christian scholars Observe, it does appear that the continents at one time all fit together. Great land masses prior to the flood. And they weren't separated by vast oceans like today. The Bible indicates that God formed the ocean basins, raising the land out of the water. That's in the original creation. The land appeared, the dry land appeared out of the water, remember? so that the floodwaters return to a safe place, as it would seem, Psalm 104 informs us, there's much evidence, listen to this again, blows my mind, there's much evidence that sea levels were once much lower 
relative to land surfaces than it is at present, implying either that the amount of water in the ocean was much smaller or that some parts of the sea bottom have dropped, or both. I vote both (laughs) because of Psalm 104. In the past decade, great numbers of sea mounts, sea mounts, M-O-U-N-T-S, sea mounts, have been identified in the middle of the oceans. These are flat-topped and therefore non-volcanic in formation and are now in many cases more than 1,000 fathoms. That's 6,000 feet below the surface. What are seamounts? They're islands. They're islands. And they're flat, so they're not cone-shaped, so no volcanic activity. And it says they give abundant evidence of having once been above the surface of the seas. You know, you know what I feel like? I feel like we're a bunch of blind people and there's all these things around and we're feeling them. You know, you've heard about the, the blind person feeling the camel, is it, you know, and trying to determine what it was and he gets the hump and one gets the... That's what I feel like we're like. It, it's like God has given us all of this evidence all over the place and we're going, hmm, could have been local, We're just not reading the signs. We're not reading the tea leaves here. And they seem to be abundant. Well, I think this is all evidence that demands a verdict, to coin a phrase from Josh McDowell. The things that we have considered would seem to be an overwhelming amount of evidence that demands an admission of its origin being worldwide floods. And I looked through Jay's PowerPoint presentation, you can get that on his website for free. You can just download it. Do the one on the flood. I think he's got three parts to it. It, It's masterful. It's wonderful. And just as over 500 cultures across the world, South America, North America, Asia, China, everywhere, they attest to the fact in their histories and their myths of the past that there were floods. There was a flood And many of them are very close to the biblical account. But such reason does not seem to dent the impenetrable idea that there was never a worldwide flood. (laughs) The Apostle Peter addresses this phenomena in 2 Peter where he links the yet future return of Christ to the recalcitrant, uh, recalcitrant denials of the great flood. Look at 2 Peter Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. I think Peter was learning new things all the time too, and he was really grateful that he got to write the epistles that he did. (laughs) He was just a fisherman, you know. So look at verse, um, let's look at verses 1 through 5. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, 
Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, Peter says, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Now that's the original creation. And then he goes in verse 6 through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Now, I want to say something about this. There's always going to be scoffers, those who will not believe in the Bible, in creation, in the flood. They're mockers. And that's a word that that carries a meaning. They make fun of it. They mock it. They're derisive. Um, They they ridicule, and they're insolent, they're proud when they do this. And 2 Peter 3.5 shows us how they handle the evidence that we can look at and say, oh my gosh, this is overwhelming. Because it says, for when they maintain this, the evidence... It escapes their notice. Now, that's a terrible translation. That's a New American Standard. I love the New American Standard Bible. That's a version that I use from the pulpit, and some of you have wondered which one I'm using. Some of you have NIVs, New International Versions. Some have ESVs. Uh, some have the New Legacy Bible. All good Bibles. All good Bibles. But I will say this. Here, and uh, the New American Standard let me down. You see, the NSB is not the best translation here because the phrase, it escapes their notice, actually translates one Greek word, thelo, which means to ignore, discount, disregard, or refuse to take notice of. It's much stronger than um, it escapes their notice. (laughs) It, It means that, well, it's in the present tense of a verb, and it means to habitually and willfully indulge this thinking, and it's an active uh, stance, and its active decision is of one's own will. So therefore, the NIV actually translates it, deliberately forget. They deliberately forget. The King James Version says they willingly are ignorant of this. And the ESV says they deliberately overlook this fact. So what you have here is not so much of a real easygoing kind of, oh, I missed that one. It's much more willful. They refuse. It reminds me of Romans where it talks about they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's what they're doing here. They're suppressing this truth in unrighteousness. And, you know, it's very interesting because they do it, um, it, it it's, it's habitual. They constantly do it. And the latter part of the verse links the flood with the original creation where it says the earth was formed between two realms of watery mass. And during the early part of the creation week, God collected the upper waters into a canopy around the whole earth and the lower waters into underground reservoirs and rivers and lakes and seas. And it brings the flood into it by saying the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. That's Peter talking. So Peter was communicating that people will go on with their lives and livelihoods, right? 
as though nothing's happening. Everything's normal. He knew the most natural thing of all is to think that everything is just fine. Oh, yeah, I, I, I got some bumps and bruises along the way here. Life's hard. But I'm okay. It's, it's going okay. Jesus said to his disciples, his return would be similar to the days of Noah, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Then Peter was saying, the mockers would say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Nothing new under the sun. Hey, don't, 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 don't talk to me about these conspiracy theories or these outlandish ideas that Jesus Christ is going to come back. What a fable. They fully deny the very clear warning that God gives everyone just as he did to those before the flood for 120 years as Noah preached righteousness. But they would not hear of it. And then the flood came and took them all away. And Yahweh sat enthroned over the flood. Point three in our outline is sin and rebellion remains post-flood. What can we take away from all this information about the flood and how one might apply it to ourselves today? Well, I boil it down to two simple facts. Number one, mankind, since the fall, is hopeless and sinful. And number two, Yahweh sits, present tense, as king forever. First, let's look at mankind since the fall is hopeless and sinful. Although the floodwaters had purged wickedness from the earth, God knew that men would remain evil after the flood because their inherited inclination to sin. Remember we talked about original sin, how it's a corruption that is within humanity. The floodwaters had no power to wash away the natural depravity of the human heart. And so we read in Genesis 8.21, After the flood, post-flood, I will never again curse the ground, God says, on account of man because the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done, even though the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Prophet Jeremiah knew this truth, and he taught it to Israel, saying this, Although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me. That's in Jeremiah 2.22, or in 13.22, I like this one. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Mm -mm. Not possible. Not possible. And then, of course, Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The problem is our heart. The problem is our heart. It has been stained with sin. The flood And the aftermath of the flood drive home the truth of humanity's sin and how God, who is without sin, responded to it. To the point of blotting out man from the face of the earth except for eight persons. Now what hope is there for the people that he created who are forever stained with iniquity? What hope is there for people? Well, that's why Psalm 29.10 
Part B comes in. Yahweh sits as king forever. All the way through the details of the flood, I continued to quote Psalm 29.10, part A. Yahweh sat enthroned over the flood. And I did that to emphasize that God was intimately involved in a terrible event of the flood, and it was his wrath against the sinfulness of mankind whose thoughts and intents of their heart were evil only and continually. But the second phrase of the verse tells us more. Yahweh sits, present tense, as king forever. He continues to reign over the earth and those who live upon it. That's us. And he has proved and provided hope for the hopeless and help for the helpless. That also is us. I'll turn again to a prophet, this time to Ezekiel. Because only a new heart will do. And the fact is that only Yahweh, who sits, present tense, as king forever, is able to bring hope and give a new heart to sinners. Ezekiel 36 talks about a new covenant. He says, God says, I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and I will give you a new heart. There it is. I'll give you a new heart. That's the problem. The heart is corrupted and it's broken and it can't do anything about it. But Yahweh, who sits enthroned forever, can. He says, I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you and I'll remove the heart of stone, one that can't move, can't do anything because it's just calcified with this corruption and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And moreover, I'll save you from all your uncleanness. Well, that sounds pretty hopeful to me. And it was to Israel as well. Because this, this covenant, this new covenant, was made with his people Israel. And do you know when Ezekiel was doing this, he was doing it while they were under Babylonian captivity. To give them hope for the future. Now, this was God's promise to his people Israel. And sitting in captivity... And this new covenant primarily given to Israel has already begun to take effect with the remnant according to the election of grace, Romans 11.5. That is all who believe in him now. Everyone who believes in him is categorized in Romans 11.5 as part of a remnant according to the election of grace. What did you do to be born? Do you have any any say in being born? I want to be born in a good Italian family. No. Nope. I want to be born in a really rich... We had nothing to do with that. Why would we ever think we have something to do with being reborn? Have you ever thought about that? Grace, 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 all grace. Why? Because he loved us. Why do you love us? Don't have a clue. Don't have a clue, but he loved us. In fact, I think there's some place in the Bible that says you did not love him, but he first loved you, right? Here's our hope. It's all wrapped up in the promises of God to provide the gift of a new heart, signifying a new birth, which is regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Only Yahweh, who presently sits as king forever, could affect such a transition. We can't do that. 
Only God, through the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, is able to replace that old heart of stone. Those people whose thoughts and intents of their heart are only evil continually. And with a new heart, he gives us a new spirit, which now governs the power of our mind, which directs our thoughts and our conduct towards God and away from sin. You see, people often tell me, I really don't have security of my salvation. I really don't feel secure. I say, why is that? I I just got, got some habits of sin I'm really struggling with badly. I said, no! That is affirmation you're a believer. What? What? That I sin? No, that you hate that sin. That you're struggling with that sin because prior to being regenerate, you don't give a rip. You indulge that sin. You love that sin. You cuddle that sin. You cover that sin. You indulge it to the nth degree and look for new ways to sin because that is the mark of a non-believer. Non-believers don't grapple with their issues of sin. It's just not in them to do that. Because they have that heart of stone. But a believer who's got a heart of flesh now feels embarrassed by the way that they act, feels ashamed because they know that Christ died for their sin. And that is a mark of salvation, folks. Now, the new covenant, which both Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31 and Ezekiel in chapter 36. So there you go. There's those chapters again. Hebrews 11 is what? Faith chapter. 1 Corinthians 13? Love chapter, okay. So the chapters for the new covenant is Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Now the next time we're together, I'm going to talk to you about the covenants of God because in chapter 9, we've got God making a covenant with Noah. It's called the Noahic covenant. And I want you to understand what these covenants are about. And no, we're not covenantalists. That's different. And I'll maybe talk a little bit about that. But Jesus opened a way for his disciples and all who trust him to partake of that new covenant now, even though it was promised to Israel. He said exactly that at the Last Supper with his disciples, which we celebrate the last Sunday every month. He says this, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. We are partakers of the new covenant. Not to its fullness, not yet, but we get in as being grafted in, right? We get to participate in the new covenant. We get the new heart. We get the sin cleansed from us through Jesus Christ. Only the king who sits as king forever could offer such redemption to sinful people to people who are hopeless and people who are helpless. My question for you is, have you received that redemption? Do you know that redemption? Do you hate your sin? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that you had Moses write these words for us that we can review them and look at them and then compare them with other writings from David and even from Peter in the New Testament, Lord. And how your whole scripture, the word of God, hangs together and complements. Each verse complements other verses.
and explains them to us. I pray, Lord, if there's anybody here today with a heart of stone, that they would humble themselves and confess and call out to you for redemption. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.